Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to Cry Like a Boy, a Euronews original podcast series dedicated to revealing stories of men who are defying centuries-old stereotypes in five different African countries. My name is Khoposo Budibe and I am a South African radio journalist and a professional who uses media for activism and advocacy around health and gender issues. If you are new to the show, this podcast explores how the pressure to be a man can harm families and societies. After having traveled to Burundi and Senegal, today we continue a discussion that started off in Lesotho, a small enclave kingdom surrounded by South Africa. If you haven't listened to the previous episodes, stop now and go back. You will hear the story of how the pressure to be a breadwinner for the family is destroying the lives of thousands of men and families in Lesotho as men leave their homes to seek employment, ostensibly in an effort to provide for their families in dangerous illegal mines in South Africa. Today we continue exploring this topic with Mbiwa Mangwiro. Mbiwa is based in Johannesburg and is an advocacy specialist for Men Engage Africa Alliance, which fights to achieve gender equality by including men and boys as part of the solution. We also invited to this podcast Rosalind Morris, who has taught anthropology at Columbia University for 25 years and has produced a documentary on the Zamazama, the illegal miners who come to South Africa, not just from Lesotho, but also from other neighboring countries such as Botswana or Zimbabwe. We remind you that these interviews have been recorded in two separate moments. In episode 9 and 10 of this show, we heard a man from a rural and depopulated district of Lesotho telling us that young boys around there no longer look for safe, formal employment after finishing school, but they all go to those illegal mines. He has two sons, and he's afraid they will follow this path too. Boys will always be boys, and they may be interested in working in the Zamazama when they see others making a lot of money. But is this true, Rosalind? So, you know, this is interesting. I ask people on the other side at the mines, we know that very few people make any money. The fantasy that one strikes it rich is ridiculous. Every once in a while, someone strikes it rich. What does this mean, really? It means that you might get 4,500 rand worth of gold. Yeah, so 300 US dollars worth of gold. You might live for four months on that. This is not rich. But the fantasy of this possibility is enormously powerful. It circulates, you know, like wildfire in this world. So when people say, oh, let's go, we can get money quickly, we'll bring it back, it's the best way to get it. This is, this is going to be 
going to be contradicted by experience very, very quickly. And people have to live in the space of that contradiction. This is where the debt arises. This is where all of the anxiety about showing wealth that you don't have arises. But when I ask people, why don't you tell people back home that this is not real? They tell me something very interesting. They say that the very fact that one person does well or that someone is able to, for example, acquire a motorcycle or maybe can squat in a house that looks grander than what is available at home, that to deny anyone else the capacity to try for that would be considered by those other people to be an act of violence in and of itself, a foreclosure of that other group person's possible future. And so they're willing to traffic in this fantasy, or at least not to reveal it for its duplicity. And this, I think, is a big part of the continuing industry. Nobody is getting very, very rich, except perhaps a few gangsters. And not just gangsters that you would imagine, you know. There are white suburban residents who are asking the men who garden for them to take some money and buy gold and act as buyers, and they become suburban gangsters who can take gold into a shop and sell it and have no questions asked. Whoever is called, always blood is there because it's man. Like myself, I was attacked. I was attacked for four days underground. Come, the suit guys came with guns, attacked us. They used us. We worked for them, not getting food. They were not giving us food, working for four days. After the four days, that's when they relieved us. And then when I get outside, I decided to leave the job. I said, no, I cannot continue this thing. Maybe sometime they can kill me. <laughs> They are not all constantly being robbed underground, but they are afraid of being robbed underground all the time. It happens. People are press ganged. And, you know, it's a space where, as in so many informal communities, there are incredible organized forces of criminality. And there's everyone else who's living in an effort to avoid it. And I think one of the big risks in the discourse about Zama Zama in South Africa is that these people are themselves the heart of the criminal problem. Whereas in fact, these people, that is those who are going underground, are primarily the victims of that criminal problem. In some countries such as Zimbabwe, where the protagonists of Rosalind Morris's documentary come from, the urban youth, which is crushed between structural poverty, unemployment, and the rigid patriarchy, are eager for emancipation. And young boys end up employed as the Zamazama in South Africa. I would like to address with Mbiwa the influence of this rigid patriarchy in such a delicate passage from adolescence to adult life when the first decisive choices are made. Mbiwa, come in here. Let's talk about this. What are your observations around this particular issue? The reality is that when uh, the passage between adolescence and, uh, and young adulthood is that passage where people's understanding of what is and what is not acceptable are really entrenched and are really formed. And it's also that passage which begins to heavily shape the environment that begins to heavily shape and define what is expected of, of, of individuals. So you find that when 
these rigid forms of masculinity, there are influences that they put pressure on young men to begin to act in certain ways. For instance, without linking it to the extractive industries, I would link it to what used to happen in South Africa, that there was this norm that was accepted that at a certain age, a young, a teenager or a young man should have slept with a woman or should have slept with a girl. And if you have not done that, it was sort of like a disgrace to the boy code. So you find that those kind of rigid masculinities, they put pressure on young men to begin to behave in certain ways that may be harmful to other members of society. We have high statistics of rape in South Africa and when you trace it back, you find that some of the people who are adult uh, rapists now are people who manifested or embraced that behavior as a result of trying to live up to these uh, rigid masculinities. So you find that in the same vein, young men end up being zamazamas, end up being caught up in criminal activities that happen within the zamazama context because they are trying to live up to the definition of what a man should be. Men should live up to this form of being aggressive, for being able to fight, being able to, to provide. There certain definitions and they begin to shape the perceptions of teenagers into adulthood. And as time goes on, they become entrenched behaviors that they continue to manifest even as they progress in their adult years. And they're also an entrapment because what it means is if you are able to live up to that form of masculinity, you are now entrapped there where you have to continue to behave in that way for you to continue to retain the power and influence that you have as a man. And whereas if you can't live up to that, it also becomes then an emasculation because you are not man enough, not living up to the code of being a man. So you find that it also entraps young boys and teenagers into trying to behave in certain ways, some which are also even harmful for them. But because society, peer pressure uh, at home, the things that they're exposed to, what they are seeing, their own families, their own communities around behaving, the ways that they're seeing them behaving, then they feel compelled to live up to that. And yet certainly they do need emancipation from that because it's entrapping them to perpetuate certain behaviors that are also toxic to them. The violence becomes toxic to them. That behavior that they engage in becomes harmful to them in those around them, whereas those who cannot live up to those expectations live with the constant tag of feeling inadequate. Contrary to what you would expect, however, the hyper-masculine space of the mind could be, for men, a safe space to talk about issues they would not necessarily address in other environments. Rosalind Morris, what can you tell us about this? I mean, people speak about it. Sexual violence, as in all post-slaving, post-colonial societies, is widespread among both white and black communities. But it's especially widespread in communities where there's no functioning state. I mean, basically, these are areas from which the state has withdrawn. Police don't come. Ambulances don't come. There are very few services or any of the infrastructures of, of the state. So in that kind of a space... The person with the biggest stick gets to do what they want, and they do. As with every community, there's all sorts of different positions on this. In my experience, among the young men with whom I work, they're extremely concerned about it. They talk about it a lot. They're afraid, both for the women in their lives and for themselves. They speak about both of these things. 
One of the young men with whom I work is very devoted to the idea of peer education. I use that formal term, he wouldn't. That is talking to other men his age about the need to fight sexual violence against women. So it's very, it's very present. People don't shy away from the discussion. And they are enraged, actually, by the fact that they cannot call on the police or the state to help in moments when there is extreme sexual violence or extreme, any form of violence. And often that precipitates, you know, more intense kinds of social conflict, I would say. So what are the elements of toxic and healthy masculinity underground? Well, I don't know that it's so easy to draw a line between toxic and healthy masculinity or whatever, you know, underground. I've heard young men talk a lot about what they inherit, you know, what traditions come to them and how much they are able to refuse what their elders did or what their elders want. And they're trying very hard to change themselves. I mean, this is the beginning of a movement away from anything that you might want to call toxic. And what we call toxic now won't be the same in 20 years. But they know that some of the habits and patterns of their parental generation's sexual relations are not to be reproduced. And they think about it. You know, it's a huge range of people, yeah? For some young men, they feel that, that alcohol is a big problem. And for many young women as well, alcohol is, is deemed a kind of demon in the mix. For some people, the fact that people are spread across the whole southern region, you know, separated from each other, inevitably this is going to lead to, you know, multiple relations and multiple households. Well, when people are trying to support two and three households, everyone's going to be in debt and things are going to collapse. But most of the people with whom I work are people who are, you know, in reasonably ordinary relationships. And they fear for that kind of violence, which is born of bravado. They speak about that, the kind of violence that is theatricalized, where someone wants to demonstrate their strength by their capacity to injure someone else. That's, I think, probably a key element. But they also live in a world where they themselves want renown. So this desire for recognition can be either a positive force or an incredibly destructive force. The world of Zamazama is highly ethnicized. People speaking the same language or from the same ethnic minorities stick together. Professor Morris calls it the terrible ghost of apartheid. Everything in South Africa is ethnicized. And it's important to understand that the notion of masculinity, but also what it means to be a man, differs in South Africa. What are the different forms of masculinity that live in South Africa nowadays? And what are the common challenges that overcome the heritage of segregation and apartheid? Mpiwa, what do you think? I think I've had touched a bit on them. One of them being the hegemonic masculinity, which says all the things that a man is supposed to behave, a man is supposed to be powerful, a man is supposed to be protective, a man is supposed to be aggressive, a man is supposed to be. That's one of the forms of masculinity that we see in the country. And unfortunately, because of the high statistics of rape and violence, we see that there's a lot that comes from that. And then there's another form, which is the complacent masculinity, where it's sort of complies with the hegemonic expectations because it does not challenge 
the status quo. You find that there are people who, while they may think that there's something wrong with the violence and so forth, but they're not challenging. They're not doing anything about it. It's not challenging the status quo. That is something that we are also seeing. But then we are also seeing that there's also now a rise of this notion of trying to promote a positive form of masculinity, where a number of organizations are now trying to then challenge to say, you do not have to live up to these expectations because these expectations can harm you in these different forms that I've been talking about, that sometimes it leads to drugs, you know, violence. This is all part of trying to live up to the hegemonic masculinity, and yet it's very toxic. And so you find that there is then that challenge. Also, because of the country's history, where there's been a lot of absent fathers that in the country because of its history with apartheid where men had to leave home to also go and fend in the mines and so forth which created this gap and young men end up having to live up looking up to people whose forms of masculinity are not necessarily the best and the country is still grappling and going through the process of then trying to move towards building positive forms of masculinity that depart from the harmful norms. But of course, it is a process because there is a lot that needs to be dismantled from those structures. Professor Morris, what are your thoughts on the role played by education in trying to fix some of the issues we just heard? Well, you know, I'm an educator, so I believe in education, and I believe education is the only means by which people can change their minds. The people who are coming from Zimbabwe into the informal sectors and into the mining sector are often not as uneducated as you might imagine. College students come to work periodically to pay their fees. People who were hoping to finish school to go into ordinary kind of business tracks uh, like uh, tourism or hotel uh, management or whatever, who found themselves cast out of school at, say, 11th, what we would call in, in the U.S., 11th grade. They're zamazaming. People who have only two or three years of education are zamazaming. So it's a, a hugely diverse group, and there's um, all sorts of different levels of education. My, my wife passed away around 2007. So when I was going for three days underground, that means I was leaving my kids alone. So I decided that, no, let me do something which can make me to stay next to my kids every time. And I end up selling, making my spaza shop out of the little bit money I'm getting from the mining. Unfortunately, because so many of these people are now illegalized migrants in South Africa, their children cannot get access to schooling. And this is a new generation that is going to be with very fragmentary ad hoc education. I think that's a huge problem for the future, as much as the lack of education was a problem uh, in the past. The migrants from Zambia, from Zimbabwe, and Botswana are not as uneducated, but their children will be. This show has been produced by me, Khoposo Budibe, in Johannesburg, Pascalina Kabi in Maseru Lesotho, and Lilo Montalto Monella Marta. Rodriguez Martinez, Naira Davlaishian, Awa Bakala, and Mame Peya Diao in Lyon. Special thanks go to Lori Martinez, Cleza Sala, and Studio Okienta. 
for helping us produce this podcast. The music theme is by Gabriel Dalmaso. I would like to thank our guests in Biwa Manguiro and Rosalind Morris. We remind you that this podcast is at the heart of a multi-format project which also includes video portraits, web articles and op-eds. You can find more information on Cry Like a Boy on www.euronews.com slash programs slash cry like a boy. Follow us on Twitter at Euronews is our handle and on Instagram at Euronews.tv. If you are a French speaker, this podcast is also available in French, Dan la tête de homme. In the French episode, we invite the woman leading an 18-month-long strike of cleaning ladies in a hotel in Paris and with a sociologist from Gabon who knows a lot about invisible workers. Please do not hesitate to listen and subscribe to the podcast on euronews.com or CastBox, Spotify, Apple, Google and Deezer and give us a review if you wish, of course. Also, do not be shy to share with us your own stories of how you changed and challenged your view on what it means to be a man using the hashtag cry like a boy. Our next stop is Guinea, where we will explore the stigma that men face after failing to reach Europe. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.